Hello, everyone. I'm Mike Ward, and welcome to Conversations in Healthcare, a broadcast series brought to you by Clarivet. In these broadcasts, uh, we reach out to key opinion leaders across the, the whole of the healthcare ecosystem and talk about challenges that they face and, and also the solutions that they are actually developing uh, to, to the, those challenges. One of the <clears throat> big challenges for the pharmaceutical industry is the uh, efficiency of the uh, product cycle for, for uh, creating new medicines. And a great determining step in that process is actually the successful uh, prosecution um, and of, of uh, clinical trials. And, you know, clearly making sure that you've got the right patients, that you've got the right principal investigators is clearly a challenge. So I'm delighted to be joined by Oriol Serra, who is the head of uh, site intelligence selection at, uh, at Pfizer, and Simon Andrews, who is uh, a colleague at Clarivate. He's the VP uh, Real World Engagement and uh, Innovations. Thank you very much for joining us. Oriol, I think it would be useful if you could give us a, a, a brief description of, of what your role is and then and also give us a de definition of what clinical site optimization is and how important it is to the drug development productivity that I mentioned. Glad to hear this. Uh, this, this is like a, a priority to start this discussion and, and because it's important to set the tone, right? So I'm the head of site intelligence site selection which is a, a, a functional uh, service group, you know, that sits within state optimization and global product development at Pfizer, right? So what we do is very critical uh, to, to how we plan and design clinical trials, right? And how we execute them, right? Without sites, we cannot enroll patients. Um, and for us, you know, the, the mainstream of work we do is basically to create and maximize opportunities for site placement for those clinical trials, right? Um, which has become very important nowadays if you consider the environment, right, and the trial landscape, right? So what we do is basically map those opportunities around the sites and understand which sites have the right level of expertise as well as understand that the KPIs in which would deliver in those experts, those, those, um, those studies, you know, uh, for the successful completion of a clinical trial or, or a number of clinical trials, of course, right? So um, <clears throat> we do that with very different considerations, right? Of course, we have to acknowledge you know the complexity of the clinical trial and find appropriate investigators have the expertise to enroll uh, you know those patients and then obviously also manage you know those patients for the conduct of the study uh, but we also have to do it with the consideration of you know the equitable and inclusive access to to medicines right these days right which is very very critical as well um, not just that we also have to use the intelligence we collect from those sites you know um, to optimize trial designs that ultimately basically enable the acceleration of breakthrough therapies for patients in need. So as you can imagine, we touch many aspects of the drug development cycle uh, with you know, this component um, you know, site intelligence and, and therefore is, is very critical. Yes. <clears throat> Thanks very much. And uh, you know, some of those, um, some of those uh, topics that you, you, you raised there, we, we will uh, explore a little further. Uh, so, Simon, um, I, I mean, could you introduce yourself and, and actually explain to the audience, um, you know, your focus when it comes to, say, for example, clinical site optimization? Sure thing. Thanks, Mike. So my role is responsible for 
engaging our clients, understanding the applications of our current real world data repository, figuring out, you know, how to expand it beyond our sort of traditional and legacy businesses. Um, you know, our, our kind of current classic use cases are very much immediately pre-launch, post-launch, a lot of commercial analytics for brand and marketing teams. But, you know, amidst a few major changes in the backdrop, um, you know, so my role is to be responsible for engaging clients for how to navigate all of that, how to figure out where our data can play a role in some of those new customer sets or new use cases. Right. Yeah. Cheers, Simon. So, <clears throat> Oriel, uh, is, is it not true that, you know, more often than not, the sort of, you know, the activity around, you know, clinical trial management was, was an activity that was, you know, previously outsourced by pharma uh, and biotech companies to, uh, you know, clinical research organizations, which much more focused on that topic. So, you know, why has Pfizer decided to you know, look to, well, it looks like it's bringing it back in house. It's a great question, Mike, you know, and, and, and I'm going to give you my, my opinion about, about this, which is my, my personal opinion, right? And, and, and may or may not be aligned with Pfizer, but you know, this is my reading of the industry, right? When it comes to uh, these type of services, you know, um, the industry is cyclical, right? You know, that we go through models of outsource, insource, you know, and, and I want to focus more on like, regardless who does the work, you know, where we are today, it's basically a pivotal moment that requires modernizing and change the way we work, right? I mean, that, that's acknowledged by, by the industry, right? There's a need for a more rapid response to develop breakthrough therapies. COVID-19, you know, definitely <laughs> brought that into the spotlight, you know, and as you may have seen articles coming up from leader, thought leaders in the industry, those models we deployed for COVID-19 vaccine, um, they, they're looking at ways to upscale them, right? Because yes, there was a pandemic and yes, we need to provide a rapid response, but there's plenty of other, you know, um, Know, situations with other patients, you know, that are in need of a breakthrough therapy, you know, that requires that we do things differently. Uh, and that, you know, also the traditional research landscape as we understood it, you know, which is, you know, currently saturated as well, you know, requires that, you know, uh, we think differently, you know. Uh, there's a large amount of patients out there who have never been offered a clinical trial, right? Um, so there's a lot of opportunity there to to basically bring access and awareness to, to these, you know, um, therapies that are in research, you know, for, for those patients for a clinical trial, right? So what we saw is the need to think differently when it comes about site selection and site placement to, as I mentioned in my first, uh, you know, question, map those opportunities with considerations of, you know, um, the environment of the sites, right? Uh, or all considerations like decentralized clinical trials, right? So for, for us, it was more of a, a strategic decision to build those capabilities ahead of when the requirements would be put in place, right? Um, and, and, and certainly, you know, that helped us address some of the challenges that we've been facing over the last almost three years by now, right? <laughs> uh, head on, right? So um, I think that was a strategic decision, you know, and, and we placed this internally and it helped us provide a rapid response to the needs of the business. But uh, you know, as I mentioned, I, I believe that we are seeing that modernization of, of the way we do site intelligence and site selection in other areas of the industry. You know? So, so I mean, yeah, could you sort of just sort of elaborate on modernization? You know, what are, what are sort of the, the, the key elements of that modernization? 
Yeah, I'm, I'll talk to this in the next in the next you know section, you know. Uh, but 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 I can give you a hint of, of what my thoughts are when it comes to modernizing, you know. So, um, site selection, especially was and site optimization, was a, a, a service that was very operational in nature for many many years, right? And and as I mentioned, if you think about, we have to think, you know, we have to start. Uh, analyzing site placement opportunities differently, right? With constraints of the environment, um, that means we we need larger volume of data, you know, uh, to be ingested for our models, you know, our predictive and prescriptive models. And therefore, you need, you know, to move forward with adoption of data science capabilities, data engineering capabilities, you know. So I think we moved away, and, and Simon would probably agree. You barely hear any more big data; you just hear data. <laughs> That big data thing we were discussing maybe two years ago is it's just it's just data. There's just a large volume of data we have to map, you know, and connect to inform our decisions, right? And and that's why I require by modernizing, you know, the type of service that site selection teams were providing in the past. You know, so it's not just transactional, it's not just operational, it's intelligent, you know, and it requires, you know, different set of capabilities, you know, um, that's when I require modernizing. And if you think about the requirements by decentralized trials or decentralized trial operations, you know, um, that only augments that need, you know, so I think that, uh, you know, modernizing this space, you know, is pretty much in alignment of what the industry requires today and will certainly <laughs> augment in terms of requirements on the months and years to come. So. So, so to give us a sort of a sense of, you know, you know what is required, you know, what what additional investment, you know, would a, a pharmaceutical or a biotech company need to make to, you know, establish, for example, you know, a, a sort of team like uh, like yours, um, you know, and what you know, so thinking about KPIs. Okay, clearly one of the most important KPIs for, for a lot of commercial organizations is the return on investment. It's a great question, Mike, you know, and, and I'm going to, again, speak in, in line of what I've been discussing, you know. So the, the, to me, the investment, whether it's in sort of sort, in my opinion, is very similar. And I'm going to boil that into two main elements. One is expertise. And the other is technology, right? So the expertise, you know, is basically you know, focus on, 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 on that intelligence component, you know, intelligent component. You, as I mentioned, you certainly need data scientists and data engineers to, to, you know, structure these big data sets, you know, and then build those models on top of the data sets um, to work smarter, not harder, you know. So, you know, a lot of these uh, data sets, you know, uh, were structured and structured in very manual efforts, you know, in the past, or maybe, you know, as connected to other components of the business, you know. Everything we do is, you know, if you think about very longitudinal, you know, so this like this line and, and we provide, you know, this service, but it connects to many other functional services within the organization, right? So you need to build those data pipelines, you need to build those, you know, algorithms, you know, but you also need operational resources, right? Because what we're building in terms of data science models, you know, technology, you know, applications, um, it's not perfect, you know, so machines definitely can compute much faster than human brains, but they still make a lot of errors, right? So you need those operational resources to contextualize intelligence, you know, and, and that operational resources are basically on the ground expertise, building relationships, managing relationships, engaging with investigators, with patient advocates, with patients when, when possible, right? To, 
to collect this additional intelligence that doesn't exist in those structured data sets, right? Um, and you know that that contextualization of intelligence is very important to reinforce and optimize our models, you know, the, with the human factor. You know? So I, I I I am a big proponent of the uh, <laughs> you know this they, 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 there is this thing called so-called the centaur chess player, right? Where basically is a you know a, a chess player using machines, you know, to make better decisions, right? Uh, the machines can compute movements very fast, you know, but there's a human intuition that the machine, at least in the forthcoming future, will not have, you know, that uh, that is what we need to reinforce those models, you know, train those models and make better decisions over time, right? So that's the expertise you need. The technology, you know, obviously, you know, like somebody like Simon can chime in better here, but you need a lot of subscriptions and licenses, right? Of course, you know, because you need trial intelligence, real-world evidence, you know, census data, uh, name it, you know, there's a large array, you know, of, of, of subscriptions and licenses you need, but then you also need technology to, you know, ingest and, and perform transactions with that intelligence, right? Um, especially if you are going to be deploying components of machine learning and artificial intelligence like our team you know, is doing, right? Um, you need an online database query system, you know, that can basically ingest this data, you know, and, and, and basically perform <laughs> quick analysis and provide you those outputs and you can use for your recommendations but then you also need an online database modifying system you know the so-called OLTP to you know host and perform those transactions you know because our models learn from you know the data but also how the user takes actions with data right um, so I would say that that's that's the technology piece and the ROI it's boiling down to two core elements you know one is cycle times <laughs> and the other is performance right so and uh, you know, if you can uh, shorten your development cycle times, you're certainly an impact to your bottom line, right? Because you can advance medicine faster. You know, and there's many you know articles out there that speak about what is the loss of revenue by every day you delay the launch of a product. You know, it's a lot. You know, but um, you know, it's just not from a revenue perspective. Like, but what is the missed opportunity of patients that require that medicine? You know, and they're not able to access it because you know, the, uh, you know, uh, research and development cycle time, you know, is too long, you know? So by the time that they, they get access to this product, they already advance in the disease and they cannot benefit from the therapeutic effects, right? So, uh, so that's very clear, you know, cycle time reduction and performance, you know, there's also, when it comes to performance, there's also uh, a lot of uh, effort that is put in to make sure that the sites that are selected and all the patients are required for participation. But every the, we always have in every study sites that are not able to enroll for various you know uh, uh, reasons you know every site that you include in a clinical trial you know it's, it has an inherent cost you know that adds up to the you know bottom line right so we can reduce the number of sites that are not able to perform by mapping better the opportunities for them to enroll the patients in the way that we want them to enroll those patients right then you can reduce the cost of conducting clinical research. And if you can do that predictably, then you can start allocating budgets and advance at more, you know, uh, therapies, you know, um, that otherwise you would have not advanced because you don't have the budget for it, you know. So, uh, so it's opportunity in, in, in many different aspects. And last but not least, of course, if you can work smarter, not harder, you reduce the operational costs, you know. So everything we do, and I think that's been the success factor of the growth of my team, is uh, through building quick wins, you know, like something that shows the organization, okay, they're from the NKPIs, interim KPIs and back at NKPIs. You know, the, the most transformative ones, 
you know, the backend KPIs take a long time to realize, you know, so a study may take one, two, three, four years, you know, to conduct and finalize, you know, a whole program may take up, up to 10 years, you know, so if you wait until you talk, you know, you measure those KPIs, you miss the opportunity to keep advancing forward, you know, so, you know, there's certainly that, that's been a success of our team being able to put different KPIs in different stages to show value and, and then through the value, then we can keep growing and delivering a better service, you know, so. So, so Simon, I, I guess, um, you know, that talk about, you know, big data and real world evidence, et cetera, uh, it's, it's kind of like music to your ears, but you know, how much of what Oriel also saying sort of resonates and you know, what, what do you think, you know, pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies who are looking to go down this path should also be, uh, you know, doing? The comment, or Oriel, your comment on needing to have the, you know, the two sides of the brain on your team, your data team, right? The technology talent, data scientists, and then to complement that, the like the domain expertise, the human intelligence. I mean, that's the story of data science application in the world at large. I mean, we've we've certainly seen it on our team. Um, I'll give you an example. We did we did work for uh, a company. I think they were in between trials, and they were kind of revisiting their revenue forecasts, and we were doing some population sizing for them for a condition where the exclusion criteria in their trial, which matched the, the label they were seeking, required a a patient to have a certain, it's like a blood clotting condition. And it's a blood clotting condition where doctors don't measure it consistently or reliably. And the, the coding documentation for it is terrible. So if you want to use data to inform, you know, how big is this population? Should I be doubling down my investment and spend another $2 billion or whatever the next phase is going to be? Um, we have all this data, claims, EHRs, whatever the company themselves had at their disposal, and if you just, you know, type in codes and, and look for patients, you're going to find nothing. But you, you need a human who knows the domain area who says, like, well, if you don't have this code, I can look for these other symptoms and reliably narrow my population in a way that makes sense. A doctor could agree with or at least, you know, is a sensible gamble to take. Um, so I think that comment is, is right on. If you don't have those people and until the point where we train all these machine learning models to replicate all our decisions, you're, 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 you're out. Um, I can imagine that for a large biopharmaceutical company, um, doing that kind of work in-house would allow you to scale that decision-making across a large number of therapeutic areas. I think, I think we have that opportunity to scale would probably be valuable. Um, and certainly learnings from one trial could help you on the next, right? I mean, the KPIs you discover could help you. Um, or we've worked with a little bit of uh, actual clinical trial data and kind of our distant past. And, you know, the amount of information that's generated, you, you, re you referenced uh, OLTPs, the amount of information that's generated in a transactional way, depending on the size of your trial is incredible. And, you know, you probably want to have, you know, a thousand different flags running every single day to know if people are meeting data entry deadlines, Never mind recruitment deadlines, just the amount of work is, is pretty astounding, right? I mean, that's where that's where technology really probably makes a, a huge impact on the operational parts, right? But you still, at the end of the day, need a human to interpret. Yeah, totally. No, I mean, we're definitely far away from that. You know, when people think machine learning, they, they, they like get all like uh, scared about machines are going to replace humans. I, I don't think so. I think machines are going to augment the decision-making power of humans, right? So... It just requires a different type of skill set, you know, to make sure that they can, you can, you have somebody who can work and interpret, you know, what machines are saying and then help machine 
you know, predict better over time, you know, uh, but you still need that human, that reader to say, that's my prescriptive action, you know, based on that recommendation, you know. So, so apart from sort of, you know, ensuring, uh, I guess, uh, a smooth human computer interface, what, what are the other sort of your key challenges in, you know, clinical site optimization do you face and, and, and how have you been addressing them? Great question, Mike. Um, you know, so in a sense of upscaling an organization or delivering a service, you know, so I'm, I'm going to tackle this in, in, in these two aspects, right? In upscaling and building a new organization, you know, so it's very important uh, to secure adoption, right? So you have a lot of stakeholders. You have stakeholders that do different services you know uh, even within stakeholders you have different demographics you know so sort of more prone to change or less prone to change you know so you have to make sure you bring all the stakeholders along at the same pace you know and with alignment otherwise you know you can come up with fancy models for C services but no buy-in you know so so making sure that you know you bring people along you know and, and you include them on the design process you know but not much about like listening to the customer requirements ultimately we deliver a service as customers, but trying to understand what job they're trying to get done, you know, and building a service and a product that tackles that, you know, focusing on what is it going to be the outcome of that job and how can I influence it? So the customer, that stakeholder feels that they, you know, they're getting a service that helps them, you know, uh, with the different services they do, right? So the, you know, the, the, that, that's critical, you know. Um, then for uh, upscaling a new team, again, as I mentioned, you have to generate immediate value, you know, to sustain investment and upscale services. You're not getting a blank check from the get-go, you know, like you, you have to come up with ways to keep impacting the bottom line, you know, and, and things that resonate with leadership to keep like sustaining that investment, you know. And then when the day-to-day, -day, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's a complex space with many, many stakeholders, right? Um, so you have to Make sure you listen clearly to their needs and somehow you come up with a blended, you know, <laughs> view of like many different needs and views, you know, um, that serves, that's going to serve most of the masters, you know, in the organization, right? We are called site, you know, intelligent site selection, but we do these with consideration of the patient needs, right? So, you know, so that's very, I mean, you have to make sure that, you know, these are, uh, patient-centric model, the site-centric model, they're both accounted in whatever you you do, right? It's not just one or the other, it's both in conjunction, you know? So that may bring challenges at times, you know, uh, you know, because there's different views and depending on who you talk to, you know, and, uh, you know, becoming with this harmonized, normalized view sometimes, you know, takes a lot of uh, influencing and convincing, you know? Um, so certainly that's one of the challenges. We're not a perfect science either, you know, so, um, you know, we, we are trying to predict human behaviors, right, you know, so, yes, you know, what we do is scientific, but we're not, you know, producing uh, machines, you know, we are enrolling human beings, we are connecting to human beings, so that human component sometimes are a factor, adds a factor of uh, unpredictability, <laughs> you know, into what we're doing, you know, so I would say we're in the business to build credible targets, you know, um, but not in the business of predicting what exactly is going to happen in the future, you know, so you have to make sure that whatever you do has continuation and therefore that buy-in, you know, from organizations that take over what you're doing and execute it is critical, right? Um, and then that you basically do 
you're flexible to course correct, you know, a lot. You know, you have to do a lot of course correction. I thought it was going to happen like this. You know, I thought these sites were going to give you what you need, but I missed this, you know, something new came up, you know, and then you have to keep analyzing and understanding the landscape to do the proactive course correction before it becomes a bit of a problem. So risk mitigation, <laughs> uh, proactive risk mitigation is of the essence in, in what we do, you know, so I would say that's definitely one of the challenges, you know. Um, and then, you know, like, you know, while, while it's certainly a challenge, I think it's an opportunity the last year and a half. And I, I think I can go on and on another podcast, right, of how challenging this one year and a half has been, right? For a while, we had to stop operations, you know, and rethink the way we would work. You know, we had to reprioritize resources to make sure we would focus on the bringing a solution for this pandemic, you know? So um, there's a lot of unexpected events we cannot control and requires the, the organization to be very flexible and agile, you know, in, in responding to those. So certainly, you know, like making sure you have a framework that is not rigid, but also agile, you know, uh, is critical to make sure you respond to the business need on a timely fashion. Uh, you mentioned about how you have to reach out to all the various stakeholders and, and you mentioned your patient, taking a patient-centric approach. Could you just sort of explain you know, how you listen to the patient, you know, which patients are you listening to and how what they say, how does that uh, influence your own uh, activities? It's a great question, Mike. You know, so uh, I, I'm part of a team called Study Optimization, right? And Study Optimization has different services. One of them is obviously site intelligence, but we have you know, a patient recruitment team, right? That basically works hand on hand. We we lock arms, you know, and we have a you know another team that focuses on that trial diversity, right? And and all of these activities we do, they basically orchestrated, you know. So they happen in parallel, but they're orchestrated, you know. So we talk to investigators, right? And they said to us something. We map the opportunities of placing a site using real-world evidence that has the identified patient data, right? So we can model you know, the, the requirements for the type of patient we're going to need, you know, and then we see the opportunities of the site. We talk to investigators to optimize designs, but in parallel, you know, the, this patient recruitment team is talking to patients to collect their insights about if the study, as we're thinking, you know, could be done differently, right? Um, you know, because sometimes we sit down and we think about, oh, the study's going to play out this way, but then a patient tells you, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> um, this blister package you're giving me for the trial, you know, and I have a topic, uh, a, a process, for example, I can't, I can open it, you know, I cannot open it, you know, so somebody, these are very evident, you know, um, situations that we, you know, collecting feedback from patients that are, you know, probably clearing evidence, you know, um, but there are others, many others, you know, flexibility on, on the visits, you know, the, the type of journey we're asking the patient to follow in a clinical trial, you know, like the, burden that it creates to their day-to-day, -day, you know, because they have to work and all of that, you know, so this, this information is certainly considered in the design process of a clinical trial alongside with site intelligence, you know, um, and then again, you know, we engage with communities, you know, that, you know, basically promote access to clinical trials to underserved communities, you know, so that actually takes consideration into where we place sites and how we map the opportunities to place some sites versus others, you know, so it's an orchestra, you know, of activities that certainly you know, do consider the patient needs and you know, requirements, you know, as one of the, the, the pivotal, you know, components of, of uh, successfully planning of a clinical trial, yeah. So, Simon, uh, so, you know, listening to Oriel there, you know, what, what, when we sort of think about sort of data sets, you know, what, what are the data sets uh, do you think 
you know, would be useful to access, right, to, you know, to help on, on all those processes? I mean, the, the, core, the core assets, which I think have found their home in so much of, of um, life sciences in the last 10 or 15 years, right? I mean, your medical claims, your pharmacy claims, your electronic health records, which are newer, um, not, you know, last year new, but uh, I, I think they've, they haven't found the same kind of um, institutional cementing, let's say. That gives you access to patient diagnostic histories. It gives you access to the drugs they're taking. If you get really good data on, you know, uh, EHRs and social determinants of health, you could do a very decent job of trying to target populations where you can make sure to match the, you know, racial diversity, economic diversity, age diversity. Um, I think those are those are kind of your cores. Um, I mean, you probably end up having to go out to labs or genomics data sets, depending on how complicated the inclusion exclusion criteria are for your trial, um, what you're really trying to measure. I mean, depending on, on the condition, maybe you're dealing with patient reported outcomes rather than, you know, blood tests, right? And in that case, you're looking at a totally different set of data, maybe even going to registries. And, and you have to be able to connect all of these, by the way, because at the end of it, one of your, your desired outcomes, right, is to figure out where can I can I recruit from a pool of patients who are most likely to be eligible for, never mind interested in, which is going to be a different question. Or I'd be interested to know in, in these kind of community engagements, working with advocacy groups. I mean, how do you, that's a rich source of information. Do you collect that and analyze it in a kind of a useful or easy way to, to inform your decision? Go on, Oriel. Go ahead, sorry. There's no, I mean, there's no easy way in, in anything we do in Simon. You know, you know that. You know, there's a very conscious effort to make it as easy and as seamless as it could be, right? Um, you know, so especially when you collect unstructured data, right? So how do you map it to other structured data sets? You know, so yeah. um, I think what you're saying is spot on. You know, so and I think this is the pivotal moment I referred to, right? In the past, you know, like uh, to model a clinical trial, you use historical data, right? So sure. I'm assuming study B will come back like study A that was completed recently, you know, but I think we are at a time that that's like, it's still like maybe directional, but it's taking less and less relevance in the way we model clinical trials because the conditions are changing, you know? So you cannot plan study B when the conditions for study B are very different to study A, right? So real world data has become like the paramount of everything we do, for sure. You know, that's what helps us map the opportunities, understand these patients and disease. How is the segmentation, you know, and what is the profile of these patients? How we can appeal them to participate in this clinical trial, right? So that, that's critical. And then the other component I think I would add on top of what Simon mentioned is the trial intelligence, right? We, we want to know who is working with who, you know, what are the interests of this person, you know, beyond the traditional, you know, interests that we can capture in other in, in the past, you know, experience being one of them. Right? We know this site has clinical trials and less than type 2 diabetes trials. That's just, that's a piece of it, but we want to know, are they an advocate for equity and inclusion in clinical trials and advocate for decentralized trials? You know, how often they work with this investigator? You know, what is the journey this patient follows from this side to this other side to this pharmacy? You know, so, you know, and we cannot, obviously we cannot follow the patient because this patient, this information is de-identified, you know, but we can de-identify data, map it in an aggregate and have a more clear picture of how we can perhaps conduct these, these studies, you know. 
everything we do now is opportunity based, you know, and to create opportunities, you have to think differently. And KPIs, yeah, they serve a purpose to level set expectations, but we are redefining KPIs as we speak with the new designs of clinical trials. Right? So, you know, real world evidence for me is, is, is critical, you know, and, and trial intelligence is critical to contextualize that intelligence, you know, that real world evidence that comes from it, you know. So, so Aurea, I'm so kind of fascinated. What, what would a, a typical day for you look like? <laughs> There's no such thing as a typical day, but like, uh, it, it's interesting, you know, so it's very, very diverse and fun, you know, so it, it usually starts with a stand up, you know, so, uh, you know, uh, you know, I mentioned maybe in previous conversations we had that we're building our own application, right, our own OLTP system, right, and so we, you know, part of the team I manage is, you know, developers, you know, front-end developers, full-stack developers, back-end developers, the dev team, you know, so I have standards with them to know, okay, how is the application going? How are we addressing the business requirements and so on, right? I have meetings then with obviously my team, you know, so we work in an agile fashion, you know, so we meet, you know, truly to be agile, you meet every day. We meet two times a week, you know, as a my leadership team, you know, and we go through the agile approach, we're looking at epic stories, you know, and then we put them together and helps us be all aligned and move forward as one, you know, in, in the, the things that we, we need to do, which is very, we're celebrating very much startup mentality, you know, so <laughs> we are not, you know, definitely that BAU approach that, you know, uh, you know, um, proceeds, you know, as, as normal, right? Um, a lot of managing up, you know, so I spend a lot of, you know, time, you know, working in, you know, with leaders within Pfizer, connecting the dots, you know, learning what they're doing, allowing, let them know what we're doing and connecting, you know, efforts, you know, so we work with, you know, many different groups, you know, we work with commercial, we work with, you know, uh, health and impact access, you know, teams, you know, we work with advocacy teams, we have patient recruitment teams, you know, so obviously there's a lot of managing up and connecting dots and we work with site networks, site organizations, building partnerships, you know, so, you know, it's very diverse, you know, so I have to wear so many hats, the technology side, the relationship side, the managing up side, the managing downside, you know, so. You know, it's definitely, you know, I'm never a dull moment, I can tell you that, Mike. <laughs> so good. Well, look, I mean, thanks very much for uh, talking to us today. Uh, it just as sort of your one, sort of, I guess, your final takeaway. So if there was your one piece of advice that people had to take on board, if they were, you know, looking to go down the route that, that, that you at Pfizer have taken, what would, what would that be? Make sure you create a purpose, you know, so everything we are doing, you know, came up from a very clear mission, you know, and a very well outlined vision, you know, so, and that for us was we wanted to accelerate with purpose the development of a clinical trials, you know, and, and when I say purpose was that, you know, the acceleration is because we want to bring forward, you know, more predictably, you know, the development of breakthrough therapies for patients in need at the speed of science, you know. So in essence, we don't want to compromise the quality of anything we do. So quality is at the forefront of everything we do. You know, it's not just speed, but quality. <laughs> uh, we're courageous, but we're focused on excellence too, you know. Um, we listen, you know, so make sure that you, you know, as I mentioned, you know, aligning and with all stakeholders, making sure that they, they, they can you know, provide their thoughts, you know, and we listen about what job they're trying to do and therefore we adapt to provide a service that helps them do the job is critical, you know. And then, well, I hope you, you felt it in the conversation. 
um, enjoy it. You know, we have, I mean, my whole team, you know, is very passionate. You know, they come to work every day, you know, with a mission, you know, and they, they so much enjoy it. You know, so joy is definitely a key component of everything we do, you know, so make sure you focus on that and those components, you know, have a mission that, uh, build a vision, and enjoy it, you know. And, and Simon, do, 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 do you have a recommendation sort of, you know, A, listening to Oriel, but, but also from your own experience? I, especially in this uh, like data, data-driven kind of uh, acceleration of our whole field, getting used to the idea of looking for insights in unconventional places. I mean, we obviously have a vested interest in real-world data, right? I mean, it's kind of our, a core asset for us, and there's a lot to be had. There are a lot of really good information to be had there. Um, I mean, Oriel, even you mentioned, right? You know, like you. You understand your patient. You also understand the physicians. You also understand the sites. But you know, you're trying to figure out how do you optimize a clinical trial. What's the weather like when a patient needs to drive to the hospital? Where do patients work? What kind of incomes do they have? Like, do 50% of your your trial enrollees likely have arthritis? I mean, it's you want to be passionate and excited about the idea that even in mundane or seemingly unrelated data, there is something to be found and something that could inform your work. I think I said, I would stand by that generally, but I think in this case too, the idea that you could just go out and get new data, even if it may contribute only a little bit, um, that to me is exciting in our real world data and data practices generally. I mean, we've had cases where, you know, you pull in like drive times between, between locations and it's, you know, if it gives you five or 10% improvement in your model predictability, great. And if not, maybe you learn something or you learn to see, you learn to see a problem from a different perspective and that's always valuable. I, I completely agree. And then you made a very good example, right? Of like, you know, we're, as we're building those catchment areas around the sites, we do consider factors like that, right? Traffic times, travel indexes, you know, um, you know, other things, you know, we map, you know, things like, communities that advocate for clinical trials to see how much we can, how likely we can activate that community or not, you know? So there's so many different ways, you know, of looking at this and, and you know, life sciences, especially like clinical research, is now adopting this mentality, but other industries have done it. You know, a lot of what we're implementing is not new, it's happening in other industries, we're just like late adopters, you know? <laughs> you know, so it's happening. So you're right, you know, a lot of the time that I spend to think about how we can do things differently is learning about other industries, you know, talking to leaders in other industries, you know, and, and see how much of what they're doing we can be implementing in our industry, you know. So absolutely spot on, you know. So yeah, definitely be, being curious, it's it's critical for being innovative, you know. That's right. It, it's probably not a surprise, I would think, that the investment communities have gotten to this place first, right? I mean, the idea that you use alternative data, right? Anything that gives you even the slightest edge. Right. I mean, these these companies have been, yeah. have been using like satellite imagery and all kinds of wild information for years. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, so Oriel, Simon, thanks very much for uh, taking the time uh, to talk to us today. Uh, fascinating conversation. Uh, probably at an area about an area that is really, really important, but actually probably doesn't get as much airtime uh, that it that it deserves because, you know, clearly. You know, as you sort of say, you know, if, if you haven't optimized 
that clinical trial process by making sure that you're running the trials in at the best sites you know that can have a, a knock-on effect on how quickly you can actually advance and accelerate those, those medicines through the uh, through through the through the timeline and of course you know that means it's those medicines are getting to patients quickly and it also means that you know the company is going to get is not not going to get its return on investment as quickly as it should so um i'm sure that the audience will be really fascinated so uh oriel sam thanks very much again um and if you'd like to uh you know sort of hear more conversations in healthcare uh please follow our LinkedIn page uh, because that's where we will be uh, you're posting alerts to, to future episode releases. So until next time, uh, stay safe and healthy. I'm Mike Ward and I'll see you in the next episode.